What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Smoking Tire Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Innova. Have you ever wondered what the check engine light is trying to tell you? Some people ignore it. They try to cover it up, unplug it, or dismiss it as an unsolved mystery. But with Innova, you can easily identify both the problem and what it takes to fix it. It's like having a personal mechanic in your pocket. I love Innova because it takes all the headache and guesswork out of trying to take care of a vehicle. If you're someone or no someone like me, Innova's for you, and here's why. Because identifying the problem is easy. You just connect your Innova OBD2 diagnostic tool using features like hotkeys and the patented all-in-one display, scan your vehicle's onboard computers to detect for any malfunctions. Then you can verify by pairing your tool with Innova's all-new Repair Solutions 2 mobile app. You'll now have free access to over 60 million fixed solutions that are verified for accuracy by real ASE certified technicians. But if you want both of these great products in one, we highly recommend looking into the 7111 OBD2 Diagnostic Tablet. It has a premium version of the Repair Solutions 2 app built in and has received the Motor Top 20 Award. It doesn't stop there. Repair Solutions 2 is the complete solution. In the app, you'll find troubleshooting information and even be able to order the right parts for the job. And if you still have questions, Innova's USA-based customer support team is always available to help from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific, six days a week. Innova tools speak your car's language so you don't have to. So you can buy Innova tools at all major automotive retailers, Amazon, and of course at Innova.com, I-N-N-O-V-A.com. So you can find the problem and fix the problem. These are really nice quality products. We have them here at Westside Collector Car Storage. They're great. Innova, I-N-N-O-V-A.com. Now, speaking of taking care of things at your car, you know what watches your car when you're not watching your car? The Blackview DR750X dash cam. I love these Blackview dash cams because they give me the peace of mind that my car, day or night, is always protected. This dual-channel Blackview dash cam comes with both front and rear cameras, so you can enjoy clear image quality day and night thanks to the full HD Sony Starvis image sensors at a wide 139-degree view angle. Blackview's newest LTE dash cam is what you really need if you're considering a cloud-connected dash cam. The newest addition to the Blackview dash cam lineup is connected by design with a built-in nano SIM card reader. This dash cam comes with a free Blackview app, allowing you to connect your dash cam directly or over the cloud, get impact notifications, download videos to your mobile device, watch live view, and more. But that's not all. Blackview's new mobile hotspot function lets you turn your LTE dash cam into a Wi-Fi hotspot for up to five devices on the go, meaning you could be on a road trip with four of your friends and each of you could be connecting to the Wi-Fi hotspot on this Blackview dash cam so you're not using your data when you're out driving and just browsing stuff on the road. Of course, you wouldn't do those at the same time, right? You'd have to be a passenger and browsing stuff on the road. Pair your cloud 
connected dash cam with a parking mode accessory for peace of mind when you're away from your car. And Blackview automatically switches to parking mode to monitor your parked vehicle. Thanks to the video buffer, the few seconds leading to a triggering event, like an impact, are also recorded. When paired with Blackview Cloud, parking mode lets your dash cam save event videos in the cloud in real time just as they happen. So even if someone were to break into your car and steal the dash cam itself, that would be saved in the cloud so you could still get that video. So go to blackview.com slash TST. That's B-L-A-C-K-V-U-E, not V-I-E-W, V-U-E, blackvue.com slash TST, and use the promo code TIRE to get 10% off any Blackview dash cam and free shipping for orders to over $200. Now, these cameras are over $200, so that pretty much means free shipping for whatever you buy. Blackview.com slash TST, promo code TIRE, gets you 10% off any Blackview dash cam and free shipping for orders over $200. Last Lastly, of course, my favorite underwear. Take a second to thank our sponsor for today's show, Sheath Underwear. Sheath makes the most comfortable boxer briefs I've ever worn. If you're sick of boxers that are too loose, briefs that are too tight, Sheath is for you. I'm actually wearing sheath underwear right now. I switched to sheath when they sponsored our video show for the last couple years. They sent me underwear, and then you know what happens? I hit up Sheath and I bought more. That's how much I liked them. I actually, they don't pay me. I paid them. Well, they paid me to say that I'm reading this right now, but I pay them because I've bought more of their underwear. Every time you hear from me, I'm wearing Sheath underwear. It's the best. You gotta get, you gotta get a pair. You get one pair, it's gonna change your life. The most comfortable boxer briefs you will ever put on your body. Their stretchy fabric is made out of a moisture wicking technology, so they're super soft. They keep everything cool, keep everything comfortable, and keep everything in place. They're particularly useful for staying cool during the summer and while working out. The most unique thing about sheath underwear is they've got these dual pouches that keep your man parts separated, keeps things from sticking together, keeps things right where they need to be. I was a little skeptical about the dual pouch thing, but let me tell you, it's a game changer. But if you're not into that idea, you don't have to use them. They're just kind of there, and you can wear them like a regular pair of underwear. These will be the most comfortable pair of boxer briefs you've ever worn in your whole life. Plus, they have brand new materials like bamboo and mesh for even more cooling comfort. If you've heard me talk about bamboo on the show, I am all about the bamboo status. I got bamboo sheets, I got bamboo shirts, and I got bamboo boxers. So go to sheathunderwear.com to get the most comfortable underwear you'll ever wear. And here's what the discount is. Code TIRE20. Code TIRE20 at sheathunderwear.com will get you 20% off your whole order at sheathunderwear.com. Promo code TIRE20. The best underwear you will ever wear. I swear it. Of course, if you're tired of listening to me read these ads, and I understand some people out there might be. They might not be into listening to advertising on our program. There is a way out. There is a side door. There is an exit plan. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash the smoking tire. Become a patron. You can comment and watch our live streams. You can get the show immediately after it's recorded rather than waiting until Tuesday or Thursday. And of course, you have an ad-free listening experience available, whether you get the show on video or audio. That's available at patreon.com slash the smoking tire podcast. All right, folks, you guys asked for it, and now you have received it. 
We've got uh, my father, Roger Farah, back in studio. He's come out to L.A. to visit his good old son. And uh, we have taken your questions from the Patreon, and that is what's driving the show. we got some really great, great questions from people. And, and even though my dad is answering individual people's questions on this show, uh, he gives business advice that I think can really uh, relate for a lot of people uh, in, in the general um, business world. So my father... Uh, Roger Farah is here on the Smoking Tire podcast. Anyway, here we are. This is uh, this is the show. Better better late than never. For uh, for the the folks waiting in the live chat, sorry, Chase Bank really hosed us this morning. <laughs> I did not know how long it would take to open a goddamn checking account, but wow, that was an ordeal. Boy, are they thorough. What was the, What's the term? The uh, customer. Know your customer. Know your customer, mm. which is we- code for watch out for money laundering. <laughs> it, was, it was really. Uh, it was really. Uh, you know, I've been watching that uh, that dope sick on Hulu, which is about uh, the OxyContin. It's yeah. a it's a dramatic reenactment oh, yeah. of the OxyContin thing, and it's it moves very slow, like taking an OxyContin. <laughs> time release it's a time release series but um the catchphrases that they come up with you know like pain is the fifth vital sign <laughs> and individualize the dose when they go you know we can make more money if the doctors didn't pres- start with a 10 milligram if they just started with a 20 or a 40 or even an 80 well how would you get them to do that well you tell them to individualize the dose and they're really coming up with like these buzzwords. How did I get on a show about oxycotton? <laughs> How did you get on it? You're not on it. You're just we're we're just we're talking about the buzzwords that the bank is using. The anti Read the book, The House of Pain, which yeah. is about that. Whole well, I think saga. that's what it's unbelievable. Uh, that I think that's what this on. series is based on. Yeah, that it's yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. No. And it, and when when it, when you have the facts of the case. Acted out by Michael Keaton, it really, it really <laughs> sends it sends it home, you know. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, there it is. Last time, uh, last time you were here, I had a whole bunch of uh, prepared questions that was basically from thirty nine years of uh, growing up around you, and um, basically the the response to, to to that from our fans was, "Well, we want to ask some goddamn questions. Enough with your questions." Let's get some questions of our own. So, so, so this time around, we, we're pretty much throwing it exclusively to our fan questions, which come from uh, the Patreon, patreon.com slash the Smoking Tire Podcast, where you can get all kinds of bonuses. Zach said we, we got our 500th patron. We did. Today, We've crested uh, 500. What that means is, Dad, that they're our best fans. Great. They, they want to get the show early. They want to watch the show live, and they want to donate or uh, or fund the show directly so they don't have to listen to me read ads which is nice it works out that's great mm-hmm. congratulations so the, the the questions for the old man come uh, specifically from uh, from the patreon and uh, we have uh, vetted them for uh, for being the ones that we thought would make a good show so we'll just dive what we'll does dive straight in uh, Ryan Lorman uh, says, what are the biggest mistakes that you see made when transitioning from an individual contributor to a people manager? Meaning what, an employee to management? Well, there are people who thrive and are really successful as an individual contributor, meaning they can do their job by themselves. They don't really interact with a lot of people and they're superstars. Those people tend to get promoted 
thinking that that skill will translate into now managing, managing people yeah. to get it done. Yeah. And sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, what book? Uh, what, I read one. I think it was in the E Myth, which is a, an entrepreneurship book that I read. It was recommended by John Stein, my brother-in-law, who is an, a successful entrepreneur himself, and he really recommended this book. Um, and they talk. The terms that they use are technician and manager. So, for instance, in in my world, it might be an engine builder or a watchmaker that is a real genius with doing that, but they may not. No, have the first clue how to manage a staff of right. 10 or 15 or 100 people. Who may not be as talented as they are. Right. And so the tendency is to want to jump in and either do their job or get frustrated with their inability to do it as well. Yeah. So what you really are migrating towards is training and development mm -hmm. and you know developing people to do the job as well as you could. Not everybody makes that transition successfully. The and one thing I tried to do which I mean, granted, I'm I'm not you, but is I took the time and the effort and put my attention to detail and everything I know about dealing with collector cars in the operations manual. I didn't just open the doors. I, I wrote a 30 page operations manual that if you read it and study it carefully, you will have a direct shortcut to everything I spent 10 or 12 years learning about how to deal with sports cars and the people who uh, own them. No, well, that was amazing. And I read that and it was you know, shocking to me that you built that from just your experience and you did it right out of the box. But if you can't do that, which some people can't, it's also a question of how do you coach somebody who's not following it? Yeah who needs extra time and attention, how do you listen to their issues and turn that into positive reinforcement as opposed to criticism? You know, it's almost like sports where the great superstars tend not to be great coaches mm -hmm. because they have expectations that players can do things that they could do, but they can't do it. Yeah. So Magic Johnson or others that were great, great all-time players turned out to be not such good coaches because mm -hmm. they couldn't manage the team when they used to be able to just do it alone. So it's a, it's a tricky transition, not everybody makes it, but it's hard to move up in a company or make more money when you're a sole contributor. Mm -hmm. You really do you have to- You might be better off be charging more and more for your personal, individual, technical as ability- As best you can. As, as best you can, I mean- Within the market constraints. Yeah. 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 So And people- People will pay a lot of money for the best of that type of individualized they will. work. But ultimately, it's about marketing yourself, but, but people will, yeah, will pay that. They will, but ultimately, to scale mm -hmm. your success, you have to be able to work with other people. Yeah. We talked a lot last time, Matt, about math and numbers and how that played into business. The other parallel to that is people management and how do you manage people and how do you train them and how do you review them and how do you coach them or counsel them? And I think this question speaks to that. We should have my wife on here. <laughs> my wife is a very good people manager. Well, she can be next week. She, she's been on the show. She's been on the show. We talked, we've talked about a, a bunch of fun things and she's been a very well-received guest. Uh, meh says, uh, any thoughts, Roger, on mixing business with family? 
Part two uh, <laughs> is a one-word answer. What would you say if a child asked you to help back a new venture? Well, I did, and you said yes. <laughs> yeah, this is a very, very complex, easy to ask, not so easy to answer question. I, my family, as I think we talked about, had a entrepreneurial manufacturing business. It was so fraught with personalities and complexities that I ultimately went out on my own. The flip side of it is, um, you know, you had an idea, you wanted backing, I supported it because I thought you had, you know, passion and you had done your homework and I was willing to take the chance. It's a risk um, because if a family investment doesn't pay off, what does that mean to the family dynamics? And so you have to be cautious with that. I, I think one of the headline things I've learned from others in this position is let the child go out and work somewhere else first. Let them go out and build a set of experiences. Let them prove themselves in a third-party environment. And then when they come and want backing or they want support uh, or they want to come into an existing family business, at least they're bringing something. Mm -hmm. They're not starting from the beginning learning on your you know, initial investment. And I've seen family businesses where that's worked very well. They said, you have to go out for five or 10 years. You have to have one or two promotions. You have to be able to bring back skills that are value added to a family business or a startup. And then giving support is a lot more comforting because you know their work ethic, you know their curiosity, you know their capacity to do the work is genuine. Well, I think that's what happened with us. That's right. I, I went to, to do other things that you really didn't know the first clue about other than you know, I was kind of doing it and uh, in an industry that didn't exist when I was even in college. Um, and so when it came time to, to do this, it was, well, at least he's not lazy. <laughs> I mean, I might be wrong, but at least, at, least, at, least I, at least we knew I wasn't lazy. No, you did your homework. I mean, there's always risk in every venture. You did your homework. It started with a, a comfort that there was a hard asset backing it up. Yeah. So that worst comes to worst. We, remember, designed the building. That's true. So that it could be converted at a nominal cost into an office building if for whatever reasons this yeah. didn't work. Yeah, that, we got two sets of plans for this building. If, the, if, if we ever determined that I made a bad call and that car storage was a bad idea, we could pull out the lifts and sell them and build a complete second story, right. and we would have 24 office suites we could rent out. With underground parking. With, with zoned underground parking. That was another part of the- That was hedging the, the bed. That was, yeah, building the underground garage is, is so that there's zoned parking for a, it's a whole row of office units if we ever decided Which to Which made it a unique building in this marketplace. Yeah. So it was a risk, but it was managed with a hedge. Yeah. And so it wasn't, you know, pass fail. Yeah, I've I've seen some some rough family dynamics when yeah. it comes to businesses. It can be very rough. And, and uh, you know, my my wife's uh, family was in at the at her her father and his brother uh, were in the, the chain manufacturing business. And pardon the pun, there was a lot of tension uh, there. Although, if you ever wanted to learn everything about fucking chains, Rick Stein will tell you. We'll go on for hours about chains. It's really amazing. But, but uh, yeah, it's that's it's rough, that's tricky. Plus, I think you know you you have a, a lot of trust in me, and you are 
not even attempting to micromanage what I what I do here. No, when you wanted to ask a question, you asked. If I could answer it, I did. If not, we tried to find somebody yeah. who had an expertise. But but it was all within the definition of the career you wanted to build mm-hmm. and an expertise you brought to the project and you learned a lot of skills along the way. So now that the yeah. second building is you know, being uh, conceptualized, it's with a wealth of experience, the risk is that much less. Yeah. So you're managing all your investments, whether it's with family or else, what's the upside and how do you protect against the downside? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dan Mannion, uh, what do you turn to to inspire creative ideas? Music, outdoors, a particular book or documentary? It's a good question as well. You know, um, I get inspiration from movies, from travel. I've done a lot of global travel. You see other cultures, other parts of the world. Um, And I think you learn and you try to extract things that can be helpful to you. Um, I I get inspired by what people. type of cre- I mean, because you're a, a numbers guy and a people manager, and you've worked in fashion, but never really on the design side of the business. So, what aspects of your career have really involved creativity besides moving numbers around? Well, you know, architecture, store designs. Mm-hmm. I've built thousands and thousands of stores all over the world. Um, some very expensive and one-off. Architecture. Some are cookie cutters that are more about the real estate location and the cookie cutter you put in place. Um, I've approved marketing and advertising campaigns. I've approved products um, all through my career. And it's with an eye towards what's going to resonate with the customer, but how do you lead them to what's next as opposed to copy what's gone on in the past. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to get so far ahead of the customer that they can't relate. Yeah. So you want to lead them to where you want them to go, where they get stimulated and interest, because for the most part, I've been dealing with non-essential merchandise. You don't need luxury, but you don't need another ring or sweater or tie. So how do you build a marketing campaign? But you also, I mean, you know, not everybody has a, a black label or purple label cashmere sweater, but I mean, I would bet there's a pretty good chunk of the population that owns one Ralph Lauren t-shirt or a pair of boxer shorts or something. Well, the way Ralph was architected is there were entry-level products that you could buy a piece of the dream by buying a a t-shirt. You could live in that ad with a t-shirt, a pair of socks, whatever, Mm -hmm. even if you couldn't afford the top. But even, you know, Foot Locker, where you're selling athletic shoes, you have to create a demand that goes beyond function. Mm-hmm. And so it's marrying function and form, and it's cars. How do you create demand for supercars or very expensive cars that get the heart racing? Because it's not just transportation. So, you know, being creative with marketing ideas, advertising, uh, architecture, showrooms, product development, where do those ideas come from? And how do you extract from what your everyday life puts in front of you? Books, magazines, But for you, it was, it was going to those places and visiting stores and- Watching customers. Mm-hmm. You really learn a lot by watching customers, how they react when they go in a store, meaning 
you know, in the United States, when people go into a store, almost invariably they go to the right. Yeah, yeah. Believe it or not, in England, they go to the left. Oh, really? Because of the way they drive. Oh, is that, is that yeah. really why? So you set the way, if you're running up. from the cops, always turn left. Because <laughs> the cops turn right, too. I, Alex Roy rule. Always well, go left. So there you go. It applies <laughs> even in the running from the police. But, yeah, yeah. So what do the customers gravitate to? If you only look at what was selling, you missed where they went to first and didn't buy and why. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, very few things are purely based on numbers. Numbers are added to a visual, an inspiration, an idea, and I think you get stimulated by the world around you, and you gotta get out of your office. Yeah. You gotta get out into the world. You gotta watch people, you gotta you know, invest in travel. So do you think a data-based work from home, shop from home economy is really going to be missing that, or do you think that the brand building on social media is making up for it? I think the right creative solutions are a combination of hard data and and analyzing that with educated instincts. Mm -hmm. I think when you put them together, you end up with the best solution. It's sort of the Steve Jobs. You know, if I went out and just asked customers what they wanted, I would never have ended up with this product or that product. So it's it's instinct married with analysis that I think gives you the best chance to move forward. Mm-hmm. Good question, Dan. Uh, Joe Leonard says, in your experience, has any business person that you've met, uh, wait, has any business person you've met that has ascended, ascended to similar levels of success ever solicited advice on how to get there? So... Oh, so have you ever had someone who's asked you advice, then get to those high levels of management? Uh, it's kind of like, do, do the people of great success know all the things before they get there, or do they ask questions to help themselves get there? No, I think the people who ultimately succeed in getting to senior positions or elevated positions demonstrate a curiosity that never stops. And even when you get to the top, you're still the most curious person there. You're still learning, you're still stimulated interest. You never get to a point where you say, I've learned it all. And so what I look for in people is intellectual curiosity. And I think we talked about this. How much are you doing on your own? How much am I responsible for in terms of your development? But I think you know people who are successful are perennially curious. Now, you get to be a CEO, there's a lot of clubs where there are other CEOs, there are organizations that bring CEOs together. And I've been in some of those where the top 50 CEOs in America get together. And you know, there's a lot of ego there, so sometimes people don't want to expose that they don't know something. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, cover it with a bluster and a kind of a tough guy act. But when you cut through it, their knowledge can be very narrow and the world is broad. So they may know a lot about the oil industry and they may not know much about another industry. So the best ones that I've come across or interacted with, and the way I try to act is to be curious about what I don't know. Not, you always, not smug you about what I do take, know. Uh, whenever you talk to me about taking a new job or a new advisory position or a new board seat, 
the first thing you usually say is, well, it's an industry I, I'd like to learn about. Right. That's I, even more so than, well, they're going to pay me a lot of money or the board meetings are in, you know, Carmel or <laughs> whatever it is. It's it's I don't know anything about the pharmacy business and they're offering me this chance to, to yeah, learn. Yeah, when I joined the Aetna healthcare business in 08 as a board member, I knew broadly about business and I knew broadly about public companies and governance and you know I ran the compensation committee those are kind of standard. I didn't know very much about healthcare and I didn't know much about insurance and I wanted to learn about it. And Aetna in addition to their insurance business because people pay premiums and the company holds the money till they pay out the policies, they had a 45 billion dollar investment portfolio. And I wanted to learn how they invested that kind of money because it added to what I knew mm -hmm. and I didn't know everything, so it was additive. So I knew I could make a contribution on a certain level, but there was a whole world that I wanted to learn more about. When Aetna got bought by CVS and I then became a board member there, then it became pharmacy, it became you know other subjects that broadened my knowledge of healthcare, and I found that interesting and stimulating. Do you find the opposite sometimes, where people get put on these boards for a reason and they, they don't really want to learn, and they have that very specific knowledge base, but maybe that doesn't really apply, yes. and you go, not that you need to throw anybody under the bus, but you go, wow, this, this person's really not helpful at all here. Correct. And in many cases, people get on boards for different reasons and they don't add a lot of value and that becomes a problem because they're not major contributors and they haven't taken the time to learn and they're not curious or they're not board appropriate which means the way you ask questions in a board setting is different than if you're the manager. What you would say in a public board, what you say privately to the CEO, what you say in a committee is different than a lot of people experience and is that because board meetings are like for the record and and they and the investors then have to read the transcript or whatever no, and then No, it's it's more about what's the level of detail a board member should be involved in versus mm -hmm. management. What's the level of advice and guidance you're giving versus active management? And some people get confused about that. Mm. And so um, you know, you can learn it, but but you got to be inquisitive. You got to be willing to spend the time to learn. Hmm. Good one. Josh says, uh, any advice on taking a leadership role as a company outsider? It's kind of a broad question, but. Well, I think the question means if you come from the outside and you're coming into a company at a leadership level, how do you enter the company properly and how do you make sure that that's a smooth entrance versus, you know, one that ends up biting you? And I think. You know, what I would recommend, because I've been in this position before, and, and a couple times when I came into a company as a CEO, the other senior executives who thought they should have had the job weren't very happy to see me. Yeah. And didn't. Or the staff has loyalty to the old, the last person. Yes, they've, know, they've made their bet with somebody. They didn't get the job. I'm a new person. They're worried about their job security, or maybe they're you know, older than me, and what does it mean if I'm younger? And, you know, I went into Rich's department store in Atlanta, and I was 33, and, you know, the guy who was 52, who thought he should have had the job, you know, saw his career as capped. Yeah. And he wasn't happy to see me. 
and neither was his wife who told me that on the first night. We had a welcome dinner and she was sitting next to me. Um, so how do you get them on your side? How do you show respect? But also, you know, you're in charge, so there's no misunderstanding who's running the place. So how do you do that? You just ask lots of questions and well, you you start by showing respect, which I understood better when I was older than when I was a young whippersnapper. Um, you ask a lot of questions. You point out to them through your questions what they don't know about their own business, and all of a sudden it begins to become clear why you're here and they're not. Mm. And you don't rub their nose in it, but but they're choking on it as they kind of stumble over an answer they should know. And then initially you try to help them. You're not starting by trying to tear them down, but some people never come around, and that that's an and that's an issue. But I always try to enter a company with a view that the people who are here are doing well, and I can help them do better, as opposed to this place is screwed up and none of the people here are any good and we're gonna have to change them all. What if that's true though? I mean, not that everybody's bad, but I mean, for a while you were kind of brought in to fix companies that were losing money. I was pretty good at reading people quickly, so I knew within a very short time who I thought would make it. Mm -hmm. And then you try to make changes in order of priorities. You start with the most troubling one and the most important job, and then you work your way over time. Maybe some people come around and surprise you, but if they don't, ultimately you have to you have to do what you have to do. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Uh, LS Everything. Uh, how do you know when it's time to go from one company to the next? Was it hard leaving established relationships, employees, etc.? Yeah, I I think this is a great question because you can be very passionate and have had a lot of success at a company, but you sort of hit the wall where you're not learning anymore, and and maybe they can't get you to the next level. I worked my first 13 years out of school at Saks Fifth Avenue, and I was senior VP right under the president, but he was a young guy, and I wasn't learning, um, and. I asked him if he would send me to Harvard for the summer because I wanted to learn. And so I went to Harvard for eight weeks. Did you? Yeah, you were little. You didn't remember this. Well, you're the only person I ever know who's been to Harvard and doesn't shut the fuck up about it. <laughs> and doesn't, doesn't talk about it all the time. I don't have my Harvard <laughs> t-shirt. <laughs> if you, everyone else who's ever spent one day there makes sure every person they've ever met that's, knows it. That's I've funny. never heard you say yeah. Harvard once so in 39 I went, uh, years, not once. Well, I went for eight weeks, six days a week, and we did three case studies every day. So you would break up into small groups. It was a global uh, senior team. And you would study 30 to 50 page case studies, three a day, and you'd go into class the next day and you'd debate them. And you'd do that again. Yeah. So over the course of- Were you the oldest person in that class at 30? I was 30? the youngest. Oh, really? This was all senior management getting oh, prepared for the C-suite. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't, okay, yeah. So this is not a college course. This no, is a professional's course. I was, I was 32. Oh, okay. And Warden had been much more of an analytical background. This was case study, business situations. What would you do if this was the, the case you were presented? And when I came back, I realized that the world was a bigger place than I was living at Saks. And about a month later, I got a job offer to go to Atlanta and I left. So Hmm. it was hard because I love Saks and I wanted to stay, but I wanted to grow more. 
And so I would say to this question, when, you, when you're at a company and they're continuing to reward you with promotions if you earn it, stay, keep going. But if you get to the point where you're not learning anymore or you're not progressing, then I think it's time to consider and it's tough. But, you know, I have relationships with people that I know from that time period still today. Well, and, I, and from what I know, some of those people have, have circled back and become, you know, some of those people from your early jobs yes. have come back to work for you and with yes. you at, at other companies A couple later. of them were my boss early on now, and then they turned around and they worked for me later. Oh, yeah. Who was that? Matt Serra. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was fabulous. He was a great boss. He taught me a lot. <clears throat> but later, you know, it just turned out that I had an opening that he was perfect for, and we continued to work together. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, if, if you need to know anything about my dad, it's that I have grown up never hearing the word Harvard <laughs> out of his mouth one fucking time, not once. Anyone else who spends five minutes at that school will let you know in the first three seconds. Well, yeah, your no. dad went as an, he went there as an adult. As a, yeah, that's, that's probably because, why. Yeah, that's probably why. Uh, Dan Blum. Uh, would like says, what is your advice for someone with 15 or plus years experience looking to make a career transition? How do you explain to someone that your skills are transferable without direct experience in the new field? So 15 years experience is a lot, and you, you are really heading into the prime of your work life, which is really late 30s to late 50s. There's a wonderful win window there where your experience is sufficient and you have energy and stamina to deliver. And, you know, sounds like Dan is right in that sweet spot of experience. There are skills that are very transferable and and those skills can apply to any industry. And then there are those that Math, are, management. Managing people, global operations, math skills. Sales. Sales, and we could go down the list. And then there are some that are very, very specific, and you wouldn't want me trying to learn on the job to perform brain surgery, would you? But I believe if you've got those skills, you could go into hospital management, you could go into automotive management. Yeah, well, you had, we've had uh, automotive CEOs. Was it Alan Mulally from right. Ford came from Boeing? Right. And, you know, on the surface, like, what, what does make building planes have to do with, with building and selling cars, you know, direct to consumers? And But and it's supply it's, chain, yeah. it's managing people, it's finance, it's HR. It's, so it's about how you write your resume and present yourself. And also actually finding the, that right fit. Yeah, and I would say if you're looking to transition after 15 years and you have transferable skills, then try to find an industry you love because you, you will be, again, moving right into the sweet spot of your career. And at that point, your transferable skills in an industry you love should provide a wonderful livelihood for a long time. Yeah, and you probably wouldn't want to make another transition five or six years after that unless you had you, to. You do that and people start wondering. They yeah. look at your resume and they say, I don't quite get what's going on here. You do it the right time once and then people say, I get it. Yeah, you say, well, I've gotten to the end of my learning in this and I'd like right. to do what I really love now, something like that. Yeah, yeah. and I, I had you know a, a similar experience when I was in my late 30s and I had had you know, a long career in retail at that point and I talked to other companies, hospitality companies, Pepsi and others wanted to recruit me and I was 
at a point, whether I do I move out of the industry I know and I'm known, and can I transfer my skills into something else, and would that be interesting or, or not? So I I totally get what Dan's looking at, and I think, I think it's it's the right time for him to be considering that. My my wife Hannah, fifteen years experience doing research in the toy industry. She worked at Hasbro. She worked at Mattel. Expert in her field, widely regarded. Um, you know, went to go work at Facebook and then at Twitter, which on the surface has absolutely nothing to do with. You know, one. It's not like it was her, her necessarily her dream to go work at Facebook, but but the the research methodology methodology that she developed did transfer, albeit with some adjustments. So she took what she knew and then she adapted it and yeah. she learned some more and she compounded that and that's what you wanna do. You wanna compound your knowledge so yeah. you're not static. Yeah. The worst point is when you hit a time in your career when you're just treading water. You're not learning anything, you got nowhere to go. You, you know, you're paying the mortgage, which you have to do, or supporting your family, which you have to do, but it's hard to work a full day in a full year if if you're not excited about going to work. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> oh boy, what's the pronunciation guide? Prashan. Prashan, right. I mispronounced this poor guy's name like six times in a row because it's not spelled. Prashan, thank you, Panicker. Uh, a higher up in my company said I could go up two levels within two to three years if I continue to apply myself. This is my first post-undergrad job. Uh, how far before the end of my first year do I initiate another conversation with him, and how do I ask? Well, I think what I would suggest is is a broad answer. Um, I think you're entitled to have a conversation every year. How am I doing? You know, Isn't what that sh- something the boss should initiate as well? I mean, I, as a, I as think a that's right, a, but not yeah. everybody does that because yeah. bosses tend to avoid those conversations if they can. Yeah. I did it here. It was weird, but I but I did it here with like valets. Right. You know. And I think that you are within your rights, particularly if your boss has said you've got upward mobility, if you apply yourself, you need to step inside that and say, how am I doing? You know, what do I need to work on? How's the quality of my work? Is there anything extra I could be doing on the outside that would enhance my preparedness for the next level. Such as Harvard. Well, Harvard, <laughs> and you get a T-shirt, and you get a mug. Um, but I've it never was, seen the T-shirt either. The truth is it was a great experience for me, but yeah. I initiated that. I went to them and said, I've researched these programs. Would you send me to Harvard? They didn't. Was there any pushback? No. They said, they're just like, yep. Sure, sounds they, good. No, they said, we think that would be great for you. Might not be good for everybody, but uh-huh. I think it would be great for you. Now, they had to let me not be at work for two months because yeah. you know it's a six days a week program. I would, And then meanwhile, you left the company. A month later, after, I did. Shortly I did, after that, so. I saw a bigger it was, world. <laughs> it was not a great bet for them, unfortunately. They came out on the short end of it. It was a good bet for you, but not for Saks Fifth Avenue. Right. Yeah. But I think you are within your rights to, um, you know, nine, 10, 12 months later, go back and say, how am I doing? What else should I be doing? I wanna be prepared for the next step. That's a good, that's a good answer. Uh, Nate says, I've been in medical sales for 10 years and have lost my passion for it. How do you know when it's time to switch careers? I feel like we've already covered this with other, other questions. Um, 
you know, it seems, well, sounds like you, it might be time to switch careers. Yeah, it does sound like that. I, I would ask the question back, which is, are you tired of the medical field or are you tired of sales? Mm-hmm. If you don't want to be in sales, then going to another industry in sales is probably not going to work. If you like the medical industry, then there are other avenues that you can, you know, apply yourself to. But at hospital management or something like that or whatever. Hospital management or or uh, another aspect, uh, depending on your qualifications within the medical field, it's a pretty big field and it's a huge part of the country's economic engine. So there are a lot of ways to get into it. But if you don't want to be in medicine anymore and you don't want to be in sales, then you're going to have to pivot pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, part two, is there a career in cars that pays just as well? This I get, I get asked about this shit all the time, and, and I try to give the best answer I can, which is that cars, like medicine, is an enormous industry. It's a huge part of our country's economy, whether it's as simple as selling cars, servicing cars, the transportation and logistics business, the media business, the um, the aftermarket, um, the events business. The I mean, there's there's a lot of different angles to quote cars. Um, so, and and a lot of them require completely different skill sets. So when you say, is there a job in cars that pays very well? Well, sure there is. Jim Farley makes a lot of money running Ford. You know, like and. and People who do PR uh, and and run those PR programs, you know, they, they do okay, and some of them get to drive dope demo cars, you know, around. And there's a lot of businesses that are solidly or uh, jobs that I would call solidly middle class uh, in the cars uh, industry, but where people are very passionate about what they're doing. Um, there's also, you know, engineering. There's uh, suppliers. You know, for every OEM, there's there's three dozen parts, you know, parts supplier, Magneti Morelli and Brembo and, you know, Bilstein and, and whatever. And then and then it goes down from there. Well, so. in Newport, when we went to the car show, you know, you were introducing me to all sorts of people who are in the car business, yeah. car industry, and they're all making, you know, very, very solid living. Yeah. So I, I, I think These the answer is yes. These one-off individual car brokers. I mean, yeah. they just manage, they're, they're basically experts in cars who are then relationship managers and just moving small numbers of very high value cars between the collectors that they know. And these guys fly around the country and go to parties and events and schmooze and- Well, if you're good at sales, which is a skill, you could make good money in the car business if you want to stay in sales. For sure. That's what I would say to Nate. And selling cars doesn't necessarily mean, you know, standing in a showroom yeah. with an ugly suit on. I right. mean, there's a lot of, right. a lot of quote, car sales right. people. Um, and even there's there's growing businesses, you know, that like these auction sites that are growing very rapidly and, and looking to hire, you know, talented people. So, yeah. Uh, uh, Dan Mosqueda, uh, do you think the acquisition by by the spark group of brands like Brooks Brothers effectively end any heritage and quality of the brand. They liquidated and closed three American factories, so we're not going to be getting actual Brooks Brothers apparel, right? I think this question can be even generalized to the other sort of mergers and acquisitions of brand and what happens to their heritage. 
Yeah, no, I, I do know this company and I know Brooks Brothers very well. And uh, while I don't like to say anything about, you know, the apparel competitors, but I would say that the current owners are going to maximize the name, extract as much value out as they can, and are probably not as committed to the heritage or the quality of what the brand used to be. And they're going to try to maximize their value. I don't think all acquisitions have to necessarily extract. I think many of them can be additive. Um, depending. The car business, Bugatti, is a good example. Well, I, mean, I think the people you know. who bought Aston Martin are putting a lot of money into it. Yeah. We'll see if in the end you know, it becomes a viable business and brand. But there are a lot of people who buy businesses and buy them knowingly they're going to be adding a lot of capital and a lot of resource, and the payoff may be many years out. There are other acquisitions that are taking heritage and stripping value and maximizing the short-term returns, and you know, at the end of the day, may discard the brand as a shell of itself. So yeah. e- each one of these scenarios is a little different. In general, though, is if you if you buy a brand and you close down factories that have been operating for many years and move it all offshore or whatever i mean does that are you are you still buying the brand you know i mean are you just buying a label on a whatever this by the way is the plot of tommy boy in case anyone's wondering this is the this is literally the plot of the movie movie tommy boy i just want the label son (laughs) there are are a lot of these (laughs) a lot of these acquisitions matt are turned into licensing businesses. Yeah. They take the name, they discontinue the operation or the manufacturing, and they just slap the label on as many products as they can, get a licensing royalty, take as much value as they can. Who are, opposite opposite that deal? Who in the fashion business is doing a really good job of maintaining that brand heritage? Well, you know, very close to home, the acquisition of Tiffany by LVMH is going to be a very good thing for Tiffany over a long period of time. They're going to make the investment. They're going to put the talent in. They're they got building. Jay-Z and Beyonce doing all the ads They got uh, Jay-Z ads and now. Beyonce. Yeah, they, you've seen all the ads? They, were, they did a fashion shoot on Bezos's yacht. Yeah, the, they, uh, you know, that that's their point of view on the the brand image. But they are going to invest and they're going to build and that brand 10 years and 20 years from now will be enhanced. Other acquisitions, which I won't go into, were probably will be stripped over five or 10 years and somebody will maximize the short-term money and the brand won't exist or will exist in a shell, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, good question, Dan. Uh, John Power uh, says, Roger, what are your thoughts on the ever-increasing wage gap between a corporation's upper management and their operative employees? As someone who seems to have solid ethical principles, what have you done in your career as CEO to foster growth and upward mobility in the companies you've run? I follow Robert Reich on Instagram, and he he, he comments a lot on stuff like this. Um, and uh, former Secretary of the Treasury, or is it Con- he's Treasury probably, or Commerce? Uh, no, he, commerce. He's commerce. probably very articulate on this. And he says uh, that you know, in the in the 50s, it was 20 to one CEO pay to worker pay, and it's now like you know 1500 to one. Um, I don't know about that. I think it's still obscene at 200 or 300 times, but. Um, 
I think this is part of the breakfast conversation we were having, which is what obligations the corporations have to shareholders versus employees, the communities they operate in, or their suppliers. And my answer is there's a shared obligation to all of those. I was telling you this morning that at CVS, and this is public knowledge, uh, management made a courageous decision to take every worker that was below $15 an hour and move them up over the next 12 months, which meant the people making 15, 16, 17 had to go up because that was compression. That's gonna cost CVS $600 million annually just to get people up to that number. But it was the right thing to do. And you can't have people working in your stores who can't afford to live in your communities. So, you know, shareholders were probably gonna make a little bit less in the bottom line, but it was a courageous decision that the board supported because it was right to do. And I think more companies have to balance what is good for shareholders, what's good for employees, what's good for the communities and your suppliers. You can't keep squeezing the last nickel out of every supply contract and wonder what's happened to either quality or the sustainability of your, of your manufacturing base. Well, like that, that book I, uh, I was reading on vacation that I yeah. left with you talks about one of the, the, the negative impacts of uh, globalization um, is, you know, globalization has good impacts as far as information sharing and knowledge sharing and, and stuff like that. But one of the negative impacts is that certain companies that used to be based somewhere, if they offshore their manufacturing, if they offshore their uh, design team, you know, and, and they no longer feel obligated to the communities in which they are based, you end up with uh, the sort of the rotting of those local communities. And so it's about to what to what degree does does the business owe that local community? Yep. And I think it should I think I think that degree should be pretty high. I agree, because pretty soon you run out of people to turn to for manufacturing options. And it's also a question of whether you own your factory base or whether you're contracting the work out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, companies have been chasing cheaper labor for decades. Um, and, you know, there's a point of diminishing returns. And I think you owe, even in contract work, you owe those people a certain basic human investment. I remember when there was the, when you were at Ralph Lauren and there was this sweatshirt fiasco. Someone made a big story out of the fact that some of the, the sweatshirts were not made in America. And you, I forget what the exact math was, but, but did the math for me that if the sweatshirt, which I think sold for 200 or $300, was made in America, you'd have to sell it for thousands of dollars because of the, 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 the cost to produce that garment here was, was completely untenable. Well, that was the Olympic uniforms. Yeah. We made the Olympic uniforms for the last couple of Olympics, and the manufacturing of that was for the most part done offshore. Some was done in the US. Because if we took that $200 retail sweater and made it domestically, which is what you know there was public outcry for, that sweater was probably $1,200. Same sweater, same make, same yarns, same construction. And so it's untenable at $1,200. So the question is, can you re-stimulate 
a competitive manufacturing base in certain industries, footwear, you know, textiles, sewing, all of which were very big, um, you know, in this country at one point and now barely exist. Um, the answer was we couldn't figure out how to do it economically. We did it politically to satisfy the outcry at that point. Now, nobody, when they got very agitated about this, stopped to say, but all the performance uniforms are made offshore. Nobody stopped to say that the sponsors of most of the teams were international companies like Adidas or, or uh, Nissan. Um, they just glommed onto this one set of uniforms that were for the opening parade and the closing ceremony. We didn't do the performance wear, which was all made offshore, because mm -hmm. it was impractical. So it's an altruistic feeling that says, well, if you could make that same garment at the same cost domestically, of course we would have done it. It's Is just it not, ever, Are they ever gonna make clothes here again, really? I find it very difficult if you can't get people to sit at a sewing machine all day or uh, in a knitting factory all day you're going to have a hard time making them at today's prices. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> good question, John. Let's see. Uh, ooh, these are these are getting wordy. Okay, Austin uh, Modelski, how do you make an opportunity for yourself to be noticed and break out of middle management? Uh, last time you talked about being in early and leaving late, making your own opportunities. But uh, if you want to reiterate or add to that, if you're stuck in middle management and you're trying to get noticed, how do you make an opportunity for yourself? Yeah, I'm not going to repeat what I said last time because I think you know we covered that. Um, I, I would say that one of the things that I tried to do, um, you know, beyond being visible early or late, is I always tried to do some homework on the people that I were interacting with. Where did they go to school? What were their prior jobs? Where were they born? So that if I had an interaction, I could pull out a soundbite of a detail about their background mm. that caught them off guard. And with stuff like LinkedIn and social media, that should you be should be able to find it ever. easier. And yeah. and so they realize quickly that you've shown some initiative to learn something about them, mm -hmm. not just have they taken the time to learn something about me. And even when I'm taking a, a meeting with people who are outside the company, I do the same thing. I wanna know where they went to school, I wanna know what prior jobs they had, and I use that in a conversation that shows interest. Mm -hmm. I've demonstrated an interest above and beyond you just coming in and saying you're Matt Farah and I'm here to mm -hmm. talk to you about X, Y, and Z. Mm. And I think if Austin coupled that with you know, perhaps finding ways to be visible in, in, you know, again, we're doing a lot of stuff on Zoom, but hopefully that won't go on forever. I think that level of extra effort will distinguish him from a similar, you know, employee that, that hopefully will get him a leg up when there's a chance for promotion. Mm -hmm. Good question. Uh, Alante Diamante, that's a combination mm -hmm. of two not great cars. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, general thoughts on taking a shot as an entrepreneur versus stability from permanent employment. 20 years in industry, 
Great, what's FTE mean, Dad? Full-time equivalent. Oh, right, yeah. Great FTE job, have recently developed software within my industry that's been a big hit, and I own the rights to it. Considering leaving the FTE world once this job runs its course and attempting to scale the software as a business. Um, wife has a great job, we have no debt. Boy, that's a wonderful choice that you've got in front of you, and I would say take your shot. If you really believe you've got the skills and the tenacity and you don't need the big infrastructure to be successful, take your shot. Because if you have those skills and you take your shot and it doesn't work, you can always go back to a stable environment. If, they went, if you went back to a stable environment having taken the shot and it didn't work out and they say, well, where were you for the last two years? You could, you could say you took your shot. And yeah. I think people would understand that. Different than the earlier question where people were talking about you know, moving a couple times within mm -hmm. a short time period. I think uh, people would understand that. And again, if it didn't work for whatever reasons and you've got skills people want, particularly in this environment where it's hard to find talent, I would take my shot. All right. My friend, uh, my friend Justin, who's like a software engineer, worked at a company for like seven years and, and did a lot of really good work for them. And then at some point wanted to go develop his own company. And he left to do that. And it was fine. And he exited and stuff. But then the other company wanted him back. And he had done such quality work for them that they weren't, they weren't upset with him because he'd left to do his own thing for a while. They're like, oh, you're available again? We'd like to have your skill set back. I think if you leave the right way and you don't burn bridges and you don't you know, say bad things. I think people understand in this environment taking your own shot. And if it doesn't work for whatever reasons, then I think people will take you back. I really do. Yeah. Uh, favorite, do you, did you, uh, I don't know who, who I think wrote it was. This. Was I think it, it the was, same dude? I think so. Oh, did you have a favorite car at the Audrain Concourse? Was a totally unrelated question. Yeah, well, first, let me just say what an amazing three days it was. And it was the, fun. The, it was really fun, and the cars were fantastic. And, and Newport was is a great place to have an event like that. And we that. had perfect weather. And, and you didn't you didn't you didn't end up paralyzed on a bird scooter. I, I didn't get to be roadkill, <laughs> which your mother would have killed you over yeah. if I had gotten hit on those but bird still, scooters. But that was a good idea. That oh. was a good idea. What did she say when she saw the scooters? She said, I'll kill you, Matt, if you, <laughs> if you hurt Dad. But she didn't go out and get a helmet. It's not like she said, here's your helmet. She's <laughs> she found a way to make it my fault if it went bad, but that she did not put in the engineering controls to prevent no, She didn't bring out the performance uniform. She only talked about the sweatshirt. Yeah. <laughs> and Matt, don't, don't leave your father behind. Don't go too fast. Um, no, the bird scooters were awesome. They were good. The only thing we didn't connect on was that the last dinner was a black tie mask ball. <laughs> and we show up without either one, just a surgical mask for COVID. But yeah, we, no, we got we, in. They, yeah, they made rules and then you could break them. <laughs> I, if we, if I, we go back, we're going to really need, we're need to bring like three suits each because they dress up there. They do. They, they dress up more than I expected, but they don't really do that in California. California, it's kind of whatever, except for the actual concourse. They they had a lot of formal events, and people were really into the dressing. The East Coast, up. man, yeah, it's yeah a more was, formal place for sure. But the the settings of all the stuff was so great. The, the big mansions in these summer cottages that are you know fifty thousand square foot homes. <laughs> it was great. I I have to say there were so many I couldn't pick out one, but my favorite all time car is the James Bond. Oh yeah, you know, Aston Martin DB Five is yeah, that what it is yeah. 
which we're going to go check out today at the was, Peterson Museum. We're yeah, going to go check that just out. Just amazing. Later. There was a, a really nice green over tan, immaculately restored DB5 in the. Uh, it was gorgeous in the show. Are yeah. James Hetfield's car still at Peterson right now? I don't know. Okay, we're going to we'll see. His cars are amazing too. Yeah, but there was a there was a real Pebble Beach quality cars at the uh, at the Audrain. It was it was great. Um, let's see. Uh, Nathan Jenkins, uh, Roger's been successful in the corporate world. I'm ex- currently experiencing success as an entrepreneur and small business owner. Not on the same level, of course. Uh, would love to hear you guys discuss similarities, differences, common themes, areas of overlap. Uh, making more than you spend. <laughs> I'm not. I I I have have really found it difficult to to go from just working with Zach and traveling around and and making these dumb videos and stuff to having a a business that's open seven days a week where, you know, you need to have total coverage and you need to, you know, I don't, I I doubt you've micromanaged employees like I have to in, in 20 years, but, but for me, it's actually hard to have such a small staff because if someone has to go out or if someone gets called for jury jury duty as my GM just did or if if you know uh, someone needs to travel for something it's it's quite difficult to 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 cover that person unless I overstaff the entire rest of the time and so which is not a good business decision yeah so you know I've I um, and and especially doing that while running this other company um, I mean, one thing that's different about from me to you is that I'm running two different businesses at a time that have virtually nothing to do with each other, and their their needs are not the same, and their schedules are not the same, and so that's been a, a real challenge for me to try to learn that. Um, well, whereas you're more on this top of the pyramid kind of thing. Yeah, no that. There's no doubt that when you're a small business owner and entrepreneur, you have to do more hands-on stuff. You got to cover when somebody's out. You got to, you know, do. You got to be into a level of detail and specificity. Yeah. Even building this building, and I said earlier, I've built thousands of stores all over the world, but then we, you know, got into the soil sample, and and you know, and we had to burn the soil. They they dug up for the foundation. Oh yeah. Remember those the are tilling, things, uh, tilling the soil for yeah, five days? I, I never had experience doing that, <laughs> and I didn't have any fast answers as to what to do. You know, I think when you're your own boss, you got to worry about everything. You can't turn to a high-powered CFO and give them some direction, and they can take it and run. You can't turn to a high-powered HR person and say, you know, you deal with this. But... Um, and, and we talked about this before, you could spend a tremendous amount of time having to justify and explain yourself. A third of my time was spent explaining our strategy and our execution and our results and people questioning and challenging that. I could never handle and a you public company. don't I would, have to I do would that. I go fucking nuts. I just couldn't do so it. So there's a trade-off yeah. of things that come with each of those careers. and. You know, I look at entrepreneurs and I'm envious because the value they build, they build it for themselves. The value I built, I built for the shareholders. 
Uh, on the other hand, you know, in most situations, I wasn't worried about paying the bills on Friday. Mm-hmm. I didn't literally, you know, have to do that. Although there were companies, I would get a nightly cash flow. What came in, what went out, how much do we have? I imagine the company has to be in pretty bad shape for you to be doing Yes, that. <laughs> and they were. And they were. If you're and looking at it every day. on Every that night scale. at five, it was on my desk, the mm-hmm. cash position. So they're very different experiences. And a lot of entrepreneurs have tremendous success and go on and create big companies. More of them get stalled out at a certain level. They can't go beyond it because it's a different skill set. Mm-hmm. So I think they're very they're very different experiences. But he's I mean as you one could probably imagine he's been very very helpful in helping me set up my pricing structure and yeah, well, figuring out how to staff people, you know, for a 7 day a week coverage and what how to, you know, how to do cost analysis and shit that I've never even yeah, considered. Yeah, there, there were there were common threads, yeah. but now you've learned a lot and You'll just keep compounding that as, as you know, you build on what you've already learned. Uh, Thomas Hawes, how do you find your chill? Have you found any techniques for going into a volatile situation as the calm one in the room? Oh, I like that, Thomas. Um, I Bring the mic a little closer if you're going to lean back. Oh, sorry. Right? Zach, could you use a little, little I, I would okay. answer this with a single thought, which is, I try to be overprepared. I try to know more about the subject that's gonna be discussed or the people in the room. Um, I wanna know as much background, enough history as I possibly can. And if I'm overprepared, then I can go into the room calm because I'm not gonna be blindsided by a question or a subject I haven't thought about, I haven't prepared for. And in many cases, I can turn the tables because my questions are more insightful than what they've asked me. And now they're on the defensive and I've got command of the room mm-hmm. as opposed to being you know, on the firing line and being harpooned by people. When I went up to see Fidelity, which is one of the biggest investment management companies and they want you to talk about your company and they have 20 people sitting around an arced table and you're sitting alone and they're firing questions one at a time and you're barely halfway through your answer and the next guy's already asking a question or a guy barges into the room and says, I just have one question and then leaves, you can quickly lose control of the situation. Mm -hmm. So um, my experiences there are as if you know your subject matter better than they do and you know a lot about their issues you can be calm and you can be cool and you can diffuse people who sometimes use emotion as a bullying technique. Yeah. Because they're noisy and angry, they think they can bully you. And I just try to get quieter and quieter. Do you think those uh, last minute room barge-ins were planned? Was it like, Tom, 12 minutes into the meeting, storm in and say you have one question <laughs> to like throw you off? No, you know what I think it is? It's a, it's a symbol that my time is more valuable than your time. Mm. So it's a... It's an attempt at messaging. I've only got two minutes to ask you a question. You can sit there for the next two hours. My question's more important. 
And wait, wh- so why were you were you at this bank trying to get them to invest, or are they They're already a shareholder, and so they have a right to your time, or how did you end up in the middle? of Generally, the they're big shareholders, right. and they wanted an annual or a quarterly meeting. Maybe they had sold down. They want to hear something that would make them buy back more. But the best thing I could do was show that I was in command of mm-hmm. what I was there for, you know, and you know that not letting that person disrupt me or throw me off or get me frazzled, I think was an important messaging as well as what I was saying. But it's, uh, uh, it's, it's not easy if you have more than one emotional person in the room because they feed off each other. Mm. So you try, to, you try to calm down and isolate people in that conversation and you put this guy in his place by the completeness of your answer. And you might even say, that's a good question, but let me tell you the question you really should be asking me. Mm -hmm. And your answer to that is more complete than his question. He shuts up pretty quickly. (laughs) Now you got him out of the way. Then you go to the next noisy person and you um, can say, I hear what you're asking me, but I see that you've already invested in the past in this company. How do you feel about those questions about that company you've already invested. Because if I've done my homework, I know what else they own. If I don't know that, I can't turn the question and play it back to them with a twist. How big of a position does does someone like that have to have in a company to demand hours of your time every year? Fidelity is an, and I'm just using that as an example. No, this is a general They could own five, six, seven percent of the company. Well, that's significant. significant. That's significant, yeah, okay. So at the time we were worth 19 billion, if they own five percent, you know. Sure, that's a bunch of money. That's a bunch of money, so you you do have to respond. If I had that much involved, I would demand a couple hours as well. I might not use it to yell at you, but I- I get it. But I understand, it's not like, but there are so, other people, other investors, who only want to have one-on-one time. Yeah. And they want one-on-one time because they think they can get more out of you In than having of, 20 people shooting questions oh, at you. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that is their strategy to extract an edge on some other investor. Are you better in that situation or in the 20 people? I don't, I don't have a preference. I'll go either way. I, I think, you know, I think that you you feed off the knowledge the person has. If they don't have a very deep knowledge, you know, I told you the story of the Rockefeller Foundation that called and wanted to invest, and they said we're long-term shareholders, and, you know, we want an hour of your time, but we want you to prepare 10-year cash flows, and, you know, we didn't have more than three-year cash flows because they're not really that predictable, And but we did it. They came in, we had a nice hour conversation, they bought $100 million worth of stock, so it was productive. Mm-hmm. They bought the stock at the time it was 50. Two months later, they sold at 52. So what's with 10-year cash <laughs> flows when you're gonna sell in two months? Yeah, yeah. It was a giant waste of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the way it goes sometimes. Yeah, well, that's a good answer. Rich from New York. Uh, what are your feelings about depreciating assets as toys <laughs> when you already have debt? Example is that I have financed an everyday car and not had the cash to buy it, but then financing a fun car that will depreciate. 
Sounds like there's a pretty obvious answer to this question. Go for it, Matt. What would, he, what would you say as a I don't give like financial advice on this show. <laughs> My only financial advice is uh, if you can get a Rolex at sticker price, you should do it. That's my own, that's the best the extent of my financial well, advice. Well, I think, Rich, you're playing with fire, quite frankly. If you're already in debt um, and you've got your everyday car for your general needs financed and you extend yourself to buy a fun car, um, it is a depreciating asset. For the most part, you are going to lose money on that transaction. And even if it's not a depreciating asset, like even if it's slowly appreciating, you still have to maintain, insure, and fuel and store this thing. Most people don't do all the math. Yeah, I think that that's a tempting thing when you love cars and you want to have a fun car, but I think there'll be a time in your life when you're not as leveraged that you can probably take that on. but. It's not a fun answer. I would not. Uh, I would not it's extend myself. Not to say myself. that you can't have a, 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 a. If you don't have, if you have a fun fund, you know what I mean. If you've got money for fun entertainment, you know. If I go to Vegas and I give, okay, I want to play some blackjack, and here's a little bit of money, and if I lose it in 15 yeah, minutes, yeah. I can live but, with that. But that's not borrowed money. No, it's not borrowed money. If yeah, you yeah. borrow money and you're going to just lose money on that, no, you're better off. Uh, you know, just having a little patience. And and save up, save up, and, you know, stick it in a jar and buy it when you've got some cash. And, mm-hmm. and invest. Yeah. I'm I so truly believe that, in the compounding oh, effect yeah. of investing. Yeah. Money will double every 10 years just at a 7% return. So if you can get 7% and your money doubles and you can add to that, you, there'll be plenty of time for a fun car and I would, I would buy it when I could pay cash. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jim Eldridge, how would you advise a company that is struggling to hire for a number of open positions? And do you think current labor market trends will force companies to change the way they hire and engage with employees in the long term? Yes, I think companies are changing and they're struggling to hire. And I think people are talking about hiring bonuses. I think people are talking about helping pay off student loans. I think people are getting creative about what they have to do to attract top talent. Uh, Many industries today are struggling with labor at all levels. And so, one, wages are going up. The offset is inflation's going up. So the actual benefit to the employee is hard to calculate, but less than it sounds. But I think if you, you know, start paying off student loans and you start helping people with education and you start raising you know, wages, uh, I think you'll be able to get the people you want. The sh- yeah, the short answer is offer more money. I mean, I hate to say yeah. it, but you know, I, I hear about this you know, from a lot of people in the restaurant business. You know, I, can't, I can't find people, I can't find, well, you're, you're probably not offering enough money. Um, but you wanna make it sticky, so you offer more and then a month later they jump to somebody else mm-hmm. for 50 cents an hour. You gotta find a way to make that employment a little stickier. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just gonna keep burning through and churning people. Good point, good point. Can I ask a question? Did your, you seem very insightful in terms of psychology and how to read people, and you said you're a quick read on people. Was that something you had innate, or was that a learned skill or studied? You know, it, it's funny, when I was thinking about this podcast today and I reflected on what we discussed, which last time we talked a lot about finance and math and all that, 
you know, equally important to me has been, you know, people and how to read them and how to manage them and human nature and, and, and you know, how to bring out the best in people or, you know, make the hard decision if you have to. I was always a leader. You know, I was the captain of the sports teams in high school and, you know, always seemed to be in a leadership role. But um, you learn as you go along about human nature. You learn about, um, you know, how to work with diverse people and how to work with creative people different than, you know, math people. Um, y you know, I'm, I'm not naturally that chatty and, you know, I don't think I'd probably be a very good salesman other than, you know, selling stock or something. But, but I, I'm an observer of people. I watch people. I, I watch them perform even if I'm sitting at a table and somebody else is answering. I can see nuances in conversation and how people phrase things. I can see where they get stuck um, emotionally and psychologically. Um, you know, I don't like to play games with people. I don't, I don't do any of the tricks, you know, that people talk about during interviews, how they, they you know, you say you want coffee and you, they say, yeah, I take it with milk and sugar and you bring it back on purpose without. Mm -hmm. And then you see if they... If they drink it or not. They drink it or they say, no, I asked for milk and sugar. I mean, there's a million tricks people play either in interviews or in interactions. I don't do that. But I, I, I do study people and I, and I read people and I think that that's an invaluable skill in any industry. We've talked about industries here and what do you want to work in and you know what role do you want to play. But having the ability to connect with people and having people want to work for you or you know learning from people I think is a big skill that is often you know, not discussed. And, you know, we'll see over time and the world has gotten so electronic and you're communicating with texts and emails and all sorts of other ways, whether you're going to lose that ability to really read people beyond that. And, um, you know, for me, it's been a big plus. Um, I like people. I mean, I, I do like engaging with people. I don't like BS artists, so I have short fuses for people who are trying to BS through something. I'd rather you say, I don't know, let me get back to you, than try to make up an answer because that is death. But, um, you know, when you travel the world and you realize there are differences in Japan or Korea or France or Italy and, you know, the culture and the behavior of people can dictate adjustments that can't just be the way of the American, uh, or do you go to Russia or you go to any of these places, um, you know, you learn to be agile in terms of how you deal with people and how you accommodate. And, you know, I was always willing to make room for talented people, even if they had some behavioral thing that I didn't really like, uh, as long as they were honest. Um, and I just think it's a, it's a critical, critical part of whether you're an entrepreneur and you're managing you know, a handful of people or you're trying to manage a big organization. And so it's often 
underestimated as a skill, but it is critical. You know, when we would run a calendar in any of my companies, you would start with the strategy and then you'd build the budgets, which would take several months. But we would then follow it up with two or three months of organizational development discussions, meaning do we have the people in the right jobs to deliver this strategy? And we would go through the top two or 300 people in great detail. What does Matt need to develop? What are the things we can do to help him get to the next level? Should we cross-pollinate him in another area where he can learn and put Zach in that job? We would spend months on that, individually thinking about individuals so their development was such that when we had the next opening, they were ready. Aren't many people who do that would spend literally two or three months doing that every year. And so you have to be willing to make the time that will pay off for you down the road. And I think back to this question of hiring, I don't remember losing anybody in, in jobs that I wanted because they felt that we were invested in their development. There are other companies where people leave because they just don't think you care or they're gonna make an investment. And again, not all of them could advance, but you know, it was an important priority and I still think it is today, so. That's our show, folks. Okay, great. Thanks, Thanks Matt. Thanks, Pops. Zach, Thank appreciate you. it. Yeah. Good show. Uh, you can follow Roger nowhere. Uh, he does not exist. He is fully analog. Uh, his flip phone status. Um, and, uh, yeah, we've do we have a sh- are we doing a show tomorrow, Zach? No, we're not doing a show tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm doing uh, the session with Christian James Hand in here. What is our next show? Monday? Mm-hmm. We got a sh- crew show on Monday? Or we got a guest on Monday? I think we have a crew show. A crew show on Monday. So there there were some car questions that came in today uh, as part of this one. We will get to those on our next crew show, I promise. Thank you to the Patreon members who who asked questions. They were very, very thoughtful. And uh, if your question didn't – if we didn't make it, it was uh, because it was offensive and wrong. (laughs) (laughs) No. No. uh, It was for reasons that don't need to be discussed. There was a lot of overlap as well. And so – Thank you to everybody for listening. We're going to go to the Peterson. Look at some uh, James Bond shit. Yeah, That'll be cool. Let's do it. Yeah, we've left, we've left mom at home. we got to go get her. we got to pick her it. up. All right. That's all for our show today. See you guys later. Thanks Thank for listening. You. Bye.